when you get to a certain point in your progression in a Western country as the children of migrants, your parents very quickly reach a ceiling where they can provide you with authentic advice on what to do mm. next. I really enjoyed this chat with Karen, perhaps because I saw our journeys to be so paralleled and yet so different. Reflecting as an Asian Australian leader, Karen, on one hand, with his community work, addresses an incredibly niche group, whilst on the other hand, through his substantive role at Henry, cuts across cultures and diasporas to tackle a universal issue we face in Western countries, taxes. Karen and I talk about being the only kid with a turban growing up in Darwin, the Australian and Indian cliches he embraces, like his love for buttered chicken and sport, and other stereotypes he doesn't subscribe to, like his dislike for Bollywood and Vegemite. We discuss Karen's advocacy for the emerging Sikh community and some great nuggets of wisdom on leadership. Welcome to Clout Asia, where we ask Australians to take us on their journey to Asia capability by choosing a food, song, show and person that captures the essence of their experience to help us understand what being an Aussie with clout is all about. I'm Lucy Du, and here is Karen Anand. Hi, Karen. Welcome to Cloud Asia. Hey, Lucy. Great to be on the show. First, I do want to give a congratulations on Henry being awarded the People's Choice Award for FinTech of the Year at the Finneys. Thank you. Thank you. It was all the more meaningful because it was people's choice, right? It's the one that the people voted on. So we were very, very pleased. We've won that award two years in a row now. So I think we must be doing something right. That's amazing. And I do want to talk a little bit more about Henry a bit later on, but maybe just to kick us off and get us started. Tell me a little bit more about your background. Yeah, sure. Maybe I'll start from now and work my way back. Currently, substantively, my day job rather is I'm the chief strategy officer and managing director for Australia for a company called Henry, which you mentioned. It's a digital accountancy software and service focused solely on the self-employed market. So that's about 2 million Aussies and Kiwis. And very simply, what we do is we automatically calculate the right amount of tax every time they get paid, pay that off to the ATO. Our Henry app allows them to run their self-employed business. So invoicing, receding, reporting. And then we are also their registered tax agent. So we're their accountant. So we lodge all their returns for them and deal with all the nasty stuff of the ATO. So we've been around a New Zealand founded company. We've been around six years been in Australia just over two years. We're the largest specialist accountancy in New Zealand, for sure. And we're probably the fastest growing accountancy in the region focused on this segment of the market. So it's super exciting. I've been there two years now as the first one on the ground in Australia to help set up the Australian business. And it's been just the thrill of a lifetime. Prior to Henry, I was a management consultant for many years. So mm-hmm. I worked at Deloitte for 10 years. I was a director in the financial services strategy practice. And concurrently with that, which is probably something you want to get into a bit, I used to chair the Australia-India Youth Dialogue, which is a bilateral diplomatic dialogue between the the two countries focused on young leaders. And then I co-founded and chaired the Young Seeker Professionals Network. Prior to that, I'd moved to Sydney for uni, sort of 2005. And I grew up in Darwin, actually, of all places. Of all places. Of all places. If you've never been, I highly recommend it. My parents are still there. They moved there in 1996, and they're never going to leave. They absolutely love the place. As a young boy, it was a great place to grow up. It was one of those places where 
It was an incredibly multicultural place because the Asian and the Southern European influence is very mm-hmm. strong. I think people had this perception that the Northern Territory is like kind of like regional Queensland, so they just assume it's a very white place. Yes. But Darwin is not. It's incredibly multicultural. Having said that, at the time I was growing up anyway, there's very little scale to the multiculturalism. So there was like one or two of everyone, right? So. Yeah. I growing up like with a turban, I stood out and my mom, bless her, she went and looked this up. I was the only boy with a turban enrolled in any school in the Northern Territory. As a nine-year-old and a 10-year-old up until I was 17, I really stood out. I'd think I'd walk through the shopping center and people would be staring at me because they'd never seen a turban before. And I'd be like, like, I'm just practicing for the time I get famous. It was a really interesting experience to grow up like that. And I think that experience then sort of shape some of the things I did later in life or have done since later in life. And then rewinding to the start, my folks migrated from India to Australia in the early 90s when I was a a small child. That's the story in a minute. Wow. It's actually kind of similar to my story coming to Australia. I also came when I was five. I don't know about you. I couldn't speak any English when I came to Australia. And there was a lot of kind of cultural differences that I still remember very clearly now of when I was a five-year-old. And one of the most vivid memories that I tell the story a lot is learning about Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. As a five-year-old learning this at ESL, English as a second language, I could not comprehend the story. I just did not understand why an egg was on a wall. Why were there men on horses? Just the entire story made no <laughs> logical sense because coming from a Chinese kindergarten, everything was very structured, very orderly, and there was always a moral to the story. There was no yeah, real sure. moral to the Humpty Dumpty story. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for you growing up, were there something similar, confusing situations? My English also wasn't great when I moved here. Coming from India, there's always the colonial commonwealth route Mm. and so your exposure to western culture the english language nursery rhymes like my parents were going through english nursery rhymes with me before i started in school right of course the fact that an egg sitting on the wall seemed odd was so early indoctrinated into me like i was like it's not an odd thing like i did have a great fall and it must have been quite painful I must say the way Shrek reframed that was just fantastic. (laughs) But I think it's almost like migrating at five. There's a tipping point where depending on what age you come in, there are certain things which you are either so local or not quite yet. So accent-wise, I think both of us, we were young enough. Mm. Our Mm. English is Australian accent English very clearly. But I feel like I was still too old for Vegemite. Yeah, right. I can't, like, I can't. I feel like. Can't do it. Can you? I I can't do it. I don't mind it, but I still prefer peanut butter. Yeah. So I think maybe language is like up to age seven, but Vegemite's like, you've got to have come before you were three (laughs) (laughs) and have eaten it. You I need a spoonful before the age of three to have that taste. (laughs) And how was it, like you said, you were the only kid as fact checked by your mother wearing a turban in school? Was there some less positive stories or just general curiosity? Yeah, look, there were less positive stories. Thankfully, not as bad as 
one would think when you make a statement like the only kid with a turban high school bullying is just rife it's not an australian thing it's a global thing right but i was very comfortable in my skin i'm a very confident person and so if you project yourself in a confident way people will react to you accordingly so there will be a lot more kids here who are uncomfortable in their skin who are introverted who are more susceptible to bullying who have got other turban kids around them but they'll still be picked on for their turban just by nature of their personality which is a little bit sad so i did have run-ins in school but i think that was bullies looking for an angle and that's the one they had with me not specifically picking out something and they would go and pick on yeah. another kid for other reasons too i think i've used it far more to my advantage because it made me stand out in what way? There's the kid with a turban, right? So use yeah. it to your advantage. People are going to remember you. Yeah. And so make the experience memorable. So the first thing was around using it as a way of going, well, whoever I meet, they're not going to forget me in this town because I'm the only kid like this. Yeah. But also then secondly, I think I developed this quite early, is a sense of responsibility, right? When people meet me and by and large, the knowledge about the traditional Sikh faith and the community is quite low. And so then it became my responsibility to A, explain it, but then B, also become the first impression. And human beings are just massive stereotypers. They meet me, if they're impressed by me, all of a sudden they're impressed by all Sikhs. Yeah. And so then it was, oh, it's a guy with a turban. I saw another guy with a turban. They're probably brothers. I don't have brothers. We're probably brothers. But I was impressed by him. So he must therefore be an impressive guy. I've always taken that on as a responsibility to try and create a really good first impression. And it's from, I don't have to now in Sydney, there are tens of thousands of Sikhs here, but from that time in Darwin, because whoever I meet, they're going to judge a community of 25 million people globally based on their interaction with me. And so that's always been incredibly important for me. That's incredible. And from such a young age to have that sense of responsibility. Did your parents have a role to play in developing that or you just had this innate sense of, hey, this is something really special that I have that I've recognized. I can be quite powerful and impactful. They certainly did. It wasn't an explicit role, but I think in hindsight, what they did was they brought me up in almost like the Sikh bubble. When I was a kid, they would tell me the stories of like our ancestors and our forefathers and the ideology around it. And I would be very inspired by it. Apart from when we'd go back to India every year or two and meet the extended family, where was my grandparents? They tell me the same stories. I had no other exposure. Mm. And so as far as I was concerned, it was my immediate family. And then it was like the ancestral stories, which are always incredibly heroic and incredibly positive. And so I was like, that's what everyone in this community is like. And I am just the custodian of their identity. I therefore have a responsibility to honor that. Now, then when I came and met people in Sydney, when I moved here, I'm like, oh, we're just like any other community with pros and cons. But up until that point, I was incredibly bullish about the whole community. I think they did that They didn't do it consciously. (laughs) It's just how parents talk about their identity and their community, particularly in ethnic families. And it had a special impact on me, obviously, given the situation I was in. In the Chinese-Australian community, I do know a lot of ABCs, for example, and even now newer migrants, their children. There's really a 
kind of adversity to embracing culture, especially in the 90s. There was really a kind of separation of, I don't want anything to do with the culture that my family and my heritage, almost a rejection of that. So it's really great to hear your story and have you be really excited about that history and that culture and wanting to share that with your life. Obviously, every story is nuanced, right? So you say that, but then there's the other parts of it, which is like the food. I love the food, the music and like Bollywood. I think I went through phases when I was a kid where I liked it, but my wife is going to kill me because she loves Bollywood, if I say but (laughs) I just, I've never been a huge fan. That's a part of the culture where you're like, oh, this is so lame. And I think music in India has evolved now for sure through lots and lots of other more global influences. But when I was growing up, there was just a staple, just nonstop. Everything was a love song. And the beauty of Western music is the genres are so broad. Yeah. Therefore, the subject matter is so broad. And for me, music has always been about energy. And you're not going to get it from like lovey-dovey songs if you want that. Whereas my nomination was anything with an electric guitar. I love rock music. If you had a song, what's the first song that comes to your head? Strong Uh, electric guitar. Enter Sandman by Metallica. That's my default for what I like in music. That's the role music plays in my life. I'm glad that you picked Metallica because we're going to have a listen. So that will be great. Why don't we go back to India a little bit and yeah. go back to your journey. And in 2012, you yeah. co-founded the Young Sick Professionals Network. What was the reason behind creating something like that? So this was started by, there were five of us who were part yeah. of the founding team. And I don't want to call it like the problem we were trying to solve because that's the language I'd use in my day job. It's the feeling that we had. And that's the response we were having to this feeling that At the time, we were sort of mid-20s. We'd been working for a few years. We were all professionals. I was in management consulting. One of the others was in advertising. One was in funds management. One was a lawyer. And we were starting to get questions from people who were anywhere between three to eight years younger than us, watched us having a little bit of success in our careers, going, can you give me some career advice? And it was literally us having a couple of conversations which manifested itself sitting around at a cafe almost semi-formally going, we should do something about this. The younger adults or the older teenagers who are a little bit younger than us are grappling with a problem that a number of our peers and some of us had, which was when you get to a certain point in your progression in a Western country as the children of migrants, your parents very quickly reach a ceiling where they can provide you with authentic advice on what to Mm -hmm. do next. And yes. the advice is very cliched, coming from no basis of knowledge or evidence, because they've not had a journey of being a professional in the country. And even if they migrated as a professional, it was as a mid-career and a senior professional. It wasn't the same journey as ours. And so it started with going, let's just create a safe space where we can come together and just share our knowledge amongst one another. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Where it's mm. like-minded people. And it was meant to be nothing more complicated than that. We 
set up the organization. We invited people to a first event. We're like, oh, let's book a room for like 50 people and 70 people showed up. We're like, oh, there's a thing here. And then we held a second event and we got a big keynote speaker or two big keynote speakers. We booked a bigger room and then 120 people showed up. We're like, oh, okay, bigger than what we thought. And so from there, it was trying to tap into why are they coming to these events? What is the purpose that you're attending? And actually, what we were tapping into was a much deeper philosophical desire that we realized we had. The Sikh community, which is reflective of just generally South Asian migration in the last 20 years, has just grown exponentially. If you go back to 2006, the Sikh community in Australia was 25,000 people. As of the last census in 2021, it's 210,000 people. And that's incredible. That's incredible. So it's gone from nothing to 1% of the country. And with that comes a lot of opportunity. It comes a lot of challenges. But the way we talked about it, we talk about there's this beautiful blank canvas. How rare is it for you to write and tell the story of a people in a new country? We are the first mass generation of migrants into this country. And so we said, look, we're organizing these things for ourselves and our peers to try and work our way through our careers. But actually what we're doing is we're taking the young professionals, which are the inflection point where you're old enough to make a difference and you're young enough to care. And so we are going to be the standard bearers of writing and telling and influencing both within the community and outside the community, the story of it. And therefore, we will hopefully set the community up for success. And it will then become a really productive and a really vibrant and a community all Australians can be proud of going, hey, we know Sikhs and they're awesome people. And we are the ones which will influence that destiny. So that's what YSPN became about. So we very quickly, with that sort of ethos in mind, we went from organizing one event to within three years, we had five chapters around Australia, New Zealand, Sydney, Melbourne, Mm. Brisbane, Perth, and then Auckland as well. When I stepped down as chair, which was in 2017, I think my management team, a couple of layers down, was like 40 plus people. And so the organization continues to live on. I'm still on the advisory board. It was impacted during COVID. It's an events-based organization. Mm. So it did lose momentum, but I'm pretty confident that the team that's in place now is really going to take it to second or third wind. And I'm very excited as to what they've got going forward. Absolutely. And you do a bit of advocacy work in the space as well. We have done. It's probably wound back a little bit. It's something that needs to pick up, but there are a couple of things. One was we've published One and the second version is imminent now of an economic impact report Hmm. of the economic impact that Sikhs make in Australia. We want to tell a positive story. Let's tell a story of positive community contribution from an economic perspective. And there's a lot of positive news of the volunteering that Sikhs do, Hmm. which has been demonstrated in Australia as well. I think we could do a better job. YSPN could do a better job. It's going to be important going forward. Any community, any size is going to have issues. And it's completely volunteer run. Completely volunteer run, yeah. Volunteer run and funded by donations from events and from community members. I can completely relate on how challenging (laughs) that is and to keep the momentum going whilst trying to juggle, you know, full-time employment, family, other priorities. What made you want to start it as a Sikh-only network? Was there a particular reason for that choice? 
it's where we saw the very personal problem. I'm a big believer in stick to your lane in terms of your capability knowledge set, but also don't stretch yourself too far or too thin. I remember I got this advice from Guillaume Swiggers at the time, who was the first big speaker mm. at a ISPN event, who was at the time, he was the CEO of Deloitte Australia. And I was a junior burger at Deloitte. And I, as being my want throughout the years, I just randomly will write someone an email and see if they'll take a meeting with me. And he did. And so I told him, I'm starting this not for profit. What advice do you have to give? And he gave three really sage pieces of advice. And the third piece was this. He said, as soon as your community organization extends its scope too broadly, such that it's not explicitly excluding people by virtue of its scope, you've stretched too far. You don't need to be everything to everyone. Focus on your lane. Be very tight around what your mandate is and execute on that because there's a million and one not-for-profits in Australia. Everyone is overlapping everyone else. If you feel there's an opportunity for you to start a new one, Mm. keep the scope very tight. And we've stated that this problem, the migrant professional networking thing is absolutely felt across other communities. And so what YSPN's done is response has gone, we've got IP, we've got knowledge, it's open source. Feel free to speak to us. Feel free to steal it off us. Do exactly the same thing for your own community. But we only have the resources and bandwidth to solve the problem for our own one. But by virtue of that, hopefully we create other people who will then go and take it elsewhere. Great advice. How did you get into and get involved with the Australia-India Youth Dialogue? I was speaking at a panel alongside some of the committee members from the AIYD and we met each other and they were looking to transition out and they said, hey, how would you like to join the committee? And I'd heard about AIYD. I mean, Lucy, you'd be familiar, you know, the ACYD, the youth bilateral organizations play an incredibly important role in Australia's unfolding diplomatic forays. And Tim Watts is a now the assistant foreign yes. an alumni of all of them, which is great. <laughs> but I was introduced, I'd heard about it. I was more than happy to join the committee because that's the other thing. It's, one is about the Sikh community, but the other thing is the Indian diaspora, which is yeah. diaspora I'm part of. And I think what the AIYD has done and is doing is so incredibly important. If I take it from an Australian standpoint, sitting over here, there is a competition for India's attention at the moment, which the whole world was competing in. And Australia is part of that mm. dogfight, basically. I'd like to think not that we're winning, but we are way over-indexed. The amount of attention right now that Australia is getting from India for a country that's only 25 million people, mm. you can call it regional, but we know it's really not. It's like a 12-hour flight. It's not close. London is closer to India than Sydney is, and therefore all of Europe is closer to India. All of Asia is closer to India. Yeah. So 90% of the world's population is closer to India than Australia. So yeah, proximity. It's effort, it's passion, and things like the AIYD have been confirmed as part of the bilateral architecture. And it was just a super exciting journey. I was on the committee for four years. I was chair for two. It yeah. was fun, a lot of fun. Yeah. It sounds like you've been really passionate personally about the advocacy space and the bilateral space. I do want to ask if that's why you picked The West Wing as yeah. your TV show. I mean, I think anyone who was a high school debater and then around that age, then stumbled into the West Wing and then watched the West Wing for a few years, always had the view that, okay, I'm going to be like President Bartlett one day. And that was me. 
until I started to spend some time with politicians in real life. And I was like, that's not what their lives actually are like. They're not up there making those fancy speeches, going to these important meetings and solving global problems in 40-minute episodes. Australia is very firmly about retail politics. It's very grindy, working your way through the party system. And I don't think that's my skill set. I didn't get into AOID because of the West Wing, but yeah, there was definitely an overlap. When you're the chair, you get to make lots of speeches. And so you try and channel your inner Jed Bartlett a little bit when you, <laughs> you got your hands gripping a lectern on your stage. <laughs> yeah. And you're a very eloquent speaker. Speaking of things that you are good at, I want to jump back to Henry. It's pretty exciting, your role. It's a company that founded five years ago. Tell us how it's gone and your role and yep. what your plans are in yep. terms of your yep. leadership with the yep. company. Yeah, so it's gone incredibly well. It was founded in Wellington by the husband and wife duo, James and Claire Fuller, and they were solving like a lot of tech companies. So I'm going to use the other language. They were solving their own problem. And their problem was they went from salaried employment to self-employment. So they were contractors. And mm. you know, I don't know if you've ever contracted before, but people get into it. Why do you get into it? You can make more money and you can have more flexibility. It's pretty, pretty good deal. Mm. But what the compromise that comes with it is the headache of the financial admin. And that's Mm. basically what Henry solves, right? We just follow the customer journey through the first parties. You go from earning net pay as a salaried employee to earning gross pay. So the tax is then your obligation. And we solve that through the Henry account mechanism. The product and the service is very elegantly designed. Actually, earlier today, I was doing some market research just around potential competitors around the world. Nobody in the world solves the problem like we solve it, which is pretty cool. And that's why we've been able to attract capital from not only investors in Australia and New Zealand, but also the US. And so for me, getting into the second part of your question around my role and what the journey's been like, I took a risk. I came across the opportunity at a point where I was on the cusp of becoming a partner at Deloitte. And it's a real big commitment being a partner at a big consulting firm. You have to pledge your commitment for at least the next five years. And I wasn't there. And I knew I wanted something else. I think when the stories of our generation are told in 100 years and 500 years, like it's not going to be about Obama and Trump. It's going to be about Musk and Jobs. It's going to be the stories of where software changed the world. And for me, I'm like, I'm either going to be part of that narrative or I'm not. Professional services is a great career, but the commercial model is stuck in the 20th, 19th century, right? Labor arbitrage model. It's not in keeping with how tech business models evolve. And I stumbled across the opportunity. There was a job going for head of Australia for this fintech, first person on the ground. I think I was introduced to someone on the board who connected me with the CEO who I spoke to the next day. Within a week, I had two interviews. And the second week, I had my final round interview. And then I had an offer. And I was like, shit. Am I going to do this? And I quickly scrambled around to see what other jobs are available. Could I do something else? I need some basic comparison. And the more and more I learned about the proposition through the interview process, and the more and more I got to know about the target market, I was like, there is such strong product market fit here. It really then becomes a communication and a scaling problem. And that's what it's been. When I joined, I was employee maybe number 20, number one in Australia. We're just under 100 now. We've raised a bunch of money. We you know, got tens of thousands of customers across both regions. I think one of the vanity metrics I love is in New Zealand, 
1% of the entirety of New Zealand's income tax revenue now flows through Henry's accounts. Um, wow, 1%. 1%. 1% of That's, yeah. the federal budget in New Zealand, federal government's budget, flows through Henry accounts. And so that's a great vanity metric for us. We are becoming very quickly systemically important over there. And it's only a matter of time before we replicate that success here. From a leadership perspective, not to put too much emphasis or anything on the cultural background, obviously you've had extensive experience in strategy, management, consulting, but how much do you think Benseek, the work that you've done in the community in the Australia-India space, contributes to what you're doing at Henry and also from a growth perspective of the Henry community and your users? That's a great question, right? I think there is a certain amount of empathy that's important because if you think about the nature of our customer base, it's incredibly diverse and it represents a real cross-section of all of Australia. So we have everything from barristers and surgeons who are self-employed right through to Uber drivers and cleaners and everything in between. And so for a lot of our customers who are new to Australia or new to self-employment, a lot of them will come from a culturally diverse background. Mm. And so having the ability to make sure that the product and the service is evolving in a way that accommodates the new face of Australia, and particularly if we're going to go through another mass migration wave now going Mm. forward, a lot of the people who will come here, they'll look for jobs, but they will be looking to supplement their income, particularly through choppy economic times with self-employment. They will pick up an Uber driving gig on the side, or they will pick up a delivery gig on the side, or they'll pick Mm. up a cleaning gig on the side. And in a country like Australia, where we're largely a digital currency-based system, your tax will be assessed and it will be followed. And if not, you'll get booted out of the country. We actually have the ability to help all these people. I think being aware of that is incredibly important. And so one of the really important aspects of Henry, which cuts through every part of the organization is this concept of fairness. Our commercial model is designed to be fair. So we don't charge a subscription fee. We actually take a clip of your income. So every time you get paid into a Henry account, we take a 1% cut and it's capped at $1,500. And that allows you to access all our services. But the belief is that If you're not working throughout the year, like if you're gigging because you are looking to supplement your income, but you don't work in a self-employed way for three months of the year, you shouldn't be paying for the service. You shouldn't be paying for things you're not using. Subscription services are sort of lazy money, right? So we take on that risk, but the principle that underpins it is fairness. And it's the same way that we are very big on pay parity, where everyone's salary is pegged when they join to a particular band and there's no negotiating that band. Mm. We're very particular on that because we know that empirically speaking, I'm not speaking out of turn here, men are better at negotiating salaries than women coming in. And so the only way you address that problem is to go, if you want this job, we've rated you at this level, it pays this much. Now, if you perform better, your salary will go up, but you can't negotiate more money coming in because we rated you and the role at this level coming in. Mm. It's a matter of what gender you subscribe to. That principle flows through the organization. I don't want to make it sound like a bigger deal than it is, but I think that's the role that I have to be very aware of in a leadership Mm -hmm. position is that the Henry customer base is incredibly broad and we have to make sure that the proposition serves that incredibly broad customer base that reflects the face of Australia today. Yeah, which is a very diverse and 
multifaceted, multilingual community. Absolutely. It's been really great to chat with you. I haven't forgotten your last two nominations. We're going to bring it back to (laughs) India. Tell me about your choices for food. A very cliche for food, I picked butter chicken, but for (laughs) a reason. I love butter chicken, don't get me wrong, but I love the Indian butter chicken. It's like chameleon food. Explain what the difference is. Is this something like a black pepper beef that just exists? in Australia in a very different way. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure someone's written a blog about this. I'd probably look it up after this show, but it's just butter chicken in Australia is very sweet. Yes. It's it's not sweet in India. Is it spicy? No, it's not spicy. It's very creamy. It's very rich, Yeah, but it's not sweet. I'm not going to try and claim like I'm some expert chef that knows how to cook it properly. Like I've got a recipe book where my mum's written it out for me, but it's traditionally it's not doused with sugar, but the reason I picked it was because I feel like it's the same underlying concept, the food, but the applications are different in different countries. And it's probably the same way as you, Lucy. Like if you communicate with your family back in China, your accent and your mindset changes. Yes. And when you're here, then your Australian accent comes on, yes. right? Speaking yes. to Aussies over here. Same with butter chicken. It just adapts itself to whichever country it's in. <laughs> I like that. I like it's, that analogy. In spirit, it's the same foods. I thought in the context of this podcast, that was a good representation. Can you tell us, just me personally, because I also live in Sydney, where yeah. you go to have good butter chicken? That's obviously yeah. not your mum's butter chicken. Yeah, that's definitely the best one. But apart from that, I haven't been there for a few years now, so I can't tell you if it's awesome anymore. There's a place in Enmore called Fahim's. I think it's on Enmore Road. Yep. It's a Pakistani place, but North Indian and Pakistani cuisine are really, really similar. And then there's another place, which is completely in a different part of Sydney, right up in the north in the Narrabeen area, and completely non-Indian name. It's called the Cheer Factory. So for any of you who live in the beaches looking for really, really high-quality Indian food, go to the Cheer Factory. Who would have yeah. known? I Who would have thought? Narrabeen for Indian food, huh? Narrabeen and the Cheer Factory. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. We'll definitely include both of those in our show notes. And for person, who have you picked? So I've picked Virat Kohli. For those people who are listening who don't know anything about cricket, he is cricket player. He's India's most celebrated cricket player of this generation. He was the captain for a number of years. The reason I picked him was he's the best batsman of his generation, arguably in the world, definitely in India. But his attitude, his aggression on the field represents modern India. So he's technically brilliant, but he's also a first-rate athlete, which is not something that's been commonly considered with cricketers, especially not Indian cricketers, but he's incredibly aggressive. And that's not something India has been known for, nor have Indians been known for. And I think that's a representation of just modern India today. I think something like one in four people under the age of 30 in 10 years' time are going to be Indian. It is the home of the world's labor market. It is the home of where growth is going to come from. And he epitomizes it. So I'm happy to send you some videos of Virat Kohli highlights. Please, (laughs) please. I'm a diehard cricket fan. I absolutely love watching him play, Just not just because of the skill, but because of the attitude as well. Yeah, I think it's a great place to end as well because I think he really reflects this new generation and the future of work, right? What does that actually look like? The talent that is going to exist in our workplace, how our workplace is going to be able to adapt. And India, like you say, is 
the biggest market as it grows the demography and the population of the places. So all the potential is really going to come out of that country. And as Australia and having the diaspora and the migration will naturally get the flow on effects. Yeah. So that gives us a lot to think about in terms of what that future is going to look like and how we can best make an impact to it. Totally. Totally. Absolutely. It's been excellent to chat with you this evening. And perhaps next time, a separate episode on cricket. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely come back for that. No, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Really Great. enjoyed it. Thank you. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Cloud Asia on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram and LinkedIn as Clout Asia. Thank you for listening. See you next time.